Let's begin with uh, some questions, if you have any. Anybody? What is that? What is uh, getting reborn? What is getting reborn? Not a very simple question. No, no. So not a very simple answer. What we would say is the mere me, but that needs to be explained. We have a continuum of mental activity. I shouldn't say we have one as if there were a separate me that possesses this, neither in the manner of I have a cow or I have an arm, either possessing something that's part of me or not part of me. But rather we should say that there is an individual continuum of mental activity which generates moment to moment to moment based on behavioral cause and effect or karma. So it follows a logical sequence of what is experienced with this mental activity. And being individual and subjective, then it can be labeled in terms of me, but that me, which can be labeled, although it refers to conventionally me, I'm experiencing rebirth after rebirth, I'm experiencing moment to moment, that what it refers to, conventional me, it doesn't correspond to uh, something. In other words, we have to make a difference between what something refers to and what corresponds to that. Let me explain the difference. We're feeling an emotion. There is a feeling of an emotion. And there are many, many different instances of similar types of emotion or feeling. Let's talk about a feeling here. And we can label them all through like a category. And that category would be happiness. Happy. Feeling happy. And so all of them are instances of feeling happy. Although, obviously, it's changing from moment to moment, the level of happiness, etc., but the quality of it is always slightly different. So, when we say that I'm feeling happy, it refers to something. I mean, we're actually feeling something. But there is no solidly, separately existing happiness that corresponds to this, that is somewhere existing, who knows where, that I'm somehow connecting with and now I'm feeling So when we talk about things corresponding to labels, corresponding to these categories, it would be things existing somehow like in boxes, like entries in the dictionary or something like that, and then just sort of sitting somewhere, and somehow we connect with them. So this doesn't correspond to anything real. Nothing is like that. When we talk about voidness, we're talking about an absence of something that corresponds to these labels. Nevertheless, conventionally, I can say I feel happy, and that happiness that I'm feeling refers to something. It's not just totally uh, nothing. Conventionally, I am feeling something. And conventionally, I call it happiness, and most people would call it happiness, although, of course, it's subjective and individual. How do they know what I'm feeling? So, me is the same thing, or the self, or person, the individual, whatever you want to call it. You can label on this continuum of individual subjective continuum of mental activity me and it refers to something but there is no sort of separate me or some sort of entity existing by itself 
separate from all of this, either observing it or controlling it or living inside the body, like living inside a house, or nothing like that. So that continuum as mental activity, the way that we have explained it, with uh, potentials and so on, energy and energy communicates and all of these things, and it can be labeled me, or individual me, and it continues moment to moment without anything solid passing from moment to moment that remains static and is moving from one moment into the next moment like on a conveyor belt. So if we think of a holographic movie, one that sort of just here it is happening, though it's never the same from moment to moment to moment. There's nothing solid that goes from moment to moment in our holographic movie, but nevertheless there's continuity. And we could even say that this holographic movie has a plot but it's not that the plot was written somewhere else and it's sort of following that plot. But looking over time, we can impute on it, well, there's a plot, there's a certain pattern. So that's sort of the karmic pattern of what's going on. So tying this in with our discussion of refuge, and my point that it's very important not to be perfectionist about all of this, then we see that, well, it's the conventional me what can be labeled on this mental activity that can go in this positive direction, this safe direction, that can reach liberation or enlightenment, but not some solid separate thing that has to be perfect and is not good enough and so on. So this is when I was saying, well, just do it. Just work on ourselves. That means without feeling that I am a separate me and now in a dualistic way I have to get myself if there are two me's here, to do this, to work on myself. There's even three me's already. I've got to get myself to work on myself. So this is absolutely a confused way of looking at things. And that third me, the one that needs to be worked on, is not good enough. And so I'm going to have to get myself, the slave driver, to work harder, to tame this lazy self over here. So this is really very neurotic. So just doing it means that, well, we have certainly decisiveness, we have willpower, we have attention, we have perseverance. All these things are mental factors that are going to accompany our mental activity, but without some separate me at the control board pushing the button, now work harder, now I'm going to take this sort of thing from the box called willpower, uh, self-control, and I'm going to connect to that, plug the wire into that, and so on. I mean, that's not the way that it's working. So when you just sort of do it, you just do it. I mean, it just sort of happens without feeling that there's a separate me that's actually doing it. Although, of course, I'm doing it. Nobody else is doing it. Okay. There's one thing that I wanted to add, too what I was uh, mentioning at the end of the last session, which concerns going in this direction and uh, not being dishonest or cheating and so on because it feels right. And if we analyze a little bit more deeply what does it mean that it feels right, then I think we would have to say that I feel happier acting in this way. And if I were to cheat and be dishonest or if I was just wasting my life and it was going nowhere, I was unhappier. I felt more uncomfortable. It just doesn't feel right. It's not comfortable. And so that underlies the basic teaching 
that everybody wants to be happy, we don't want to be unhappy, and having the safe direction in our life and being more honest and uh, so on brings more happiness. And the contrary, if we don't have this, it brings more unhappiness. So it just reaffirms this basic principle that we have in Buddhism. Now, of course, we can object to that and say, well, there are some criminals that cheat and do all sorts of illegal things, and they feel very good about it, got away with it, and so on. So one could object, but then one would have to analyze a little bit more deeply how long that type of feeling of satisfaction lasts. Is it something which is valid or not? Okay, any other questions? Okay, counted up to three, and no more questions, so end of question session. (laughs) Now, what I wanted to discuss or present this afternoon, and uh, in not a tremendous amount of detail, since we don't have so much time, are the various types of training that are specified in terms of how we train ourselves to actually put this direction in our life, the safe direction of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, because that gives a very clear indication of the practical application of all of this in daily life. So what do we actually do in order to maintain that direction? And here we have two lists. One list comes from a text written by an ancient Indian Buddhist master called the Sangha, and one derives from what's called the guideline instruction. Guideline instructions actually could be either written or just oral. oral. But anyway, it's not specified that it comes from a certain text. Okay, so let's first go through the uh, list that comes from this uh, specific text by Asanga. There's a list from the text. It's the guideline instruction that has uh, the two divisions. Parallel to taking safe direction from the Buddhas, we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to a spiritual teacher. So here we're going to have a list of things that are parallel to each of the three jewels individually and then two or three in common. That's what we'll have in both of these sets of lists. So you remember we were discussing quite a bit the importance of having a role model, an inspiration from a role model in order to be able to go in this direction. For that, we need a spiritual teacher. Spiritual teacher is not just somebody that gives us information. We can get information from a book or the Internet, but somebody who can actually inspire us by their living example and, of course, answer questions and so on and correct us when we're making mistakes. And if we haven't found a spiritual teacher yet, we need to try to make some effort to find one. Yeah, that's very difficult, especially when we have a limited choice. Not that many teachers come to where we might be living, and even if they do, they don't stay. And there's so many other students, they don't have time to deal with me individually. But there are many different levels of spiritual teacher. I have a whole book about this relating to a spiritual teacher. Find it on my website. So there can be teachers that just give us information. There can be teachers that show us how to sit properly and... So on, there can be uh, teachers that just help us with the discussion. There can be teachers who are actual spiritual guides who advise us in our lives. But really what we're talking about here is the one that inspires us. And the person who inspires us personally might not inspire anybody else. 
Just because other people find this teacher so great doesn't mean that we're going to find that person so inspiring. There has to be some sort of, to use the Western jargon, personal chemistry involved here. Or to use the Buddhist jargon, some karmic relationship. <laughs> but that teacher that we find so inspiring that's really going to give us the energy along the path and the role model doesn't have to be the one that actually we get a lot of information or personal guidance from. could be someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama that we might never meet individually one-to-one. And obviously if we attend teachings by His Holiness or listen to his tapes or books, that's much better. And in terms of taking refuge, there is a formal ceremony that can be done, which is, in a sense, making this into an event that, okay, now I really am doing this seriously. And we do this with the spiritual teacher. But that doesn't mean that this person actually becomes our guru, our spiritual teacher. We show respect to them because, in a sense, they've opened the door for us. But that's all. And it also doesn't mean that we have now joined the tradition of Buddhism that this person from whom we receive the refuge follows. We haven't joined that person's club, and now we are exclusively part of their Dharma football team. We're taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. We're not taking refuge in the person that conducts the ceremony. Okay, so... Very important. If we're going to go in this direction, to have some role model, someone that inspires us, some spiritual teacher. That's the main function when you look in the text. Of what does a spiritual teacher provide? They provide the inspiration, the energy, to get us started on the path, to maintain us on the path, and to give us the energy to complete the path. Because, as I explained, although in theory we can gain that inspiration from the example of Buddha Shakyamuni himself and the Aryas, for most of us, that's pretty difficult to relate to, and we certainly don't meet any of these people. Then to maintain a Dharma direction in our life, the first thing that we need to train in is to study the Buddhist teachings. That's very, very important. Without actually studying, and this is holiness, Dalai Lama emphasizes over and over and over again, without actually studying the teachings, which means to learn them, don't think of the model of school in which you might have some negative connotations. But if you haven't learned the teachings, you, can, you don't understand anything. To just do rituals and things like that with no understanding is uh, not going to bring much results. To go in that direction, we have to know what the direction is. We have to learn what the methods are. If you haven't learned it, how can you possibly go in this direction? If you want to read, you have to learn how to read. I mean, there's no way around it. And the second training here in connection with the Dharma is focusing our attention on those aspects of the teachings specifically for overcoming our disturbing emotions. Well, there's teachings about all sorts of things, but to just learn the length of lifespan in each of the different realms, well, nice to know, but is not specifically directed at helping us to overcome our anger, for example, or our greed or selfishness. So within the teachings, focus on those aspects that are going to help us to overcome our disturbing emotions, our disturbing attitudes. And to maintain this direction from the Sangha, referring to the Arya Sangha, these highly realized practitioners, the uh, training is to follow their example. 
So here we're not talking about the example of a monastic. It's not that we have to become a monk or a nun. But rather, what it's saying is that we have to work, because an aria, after all, can be either a monastic or not. But what it's saying is that we need to follow their example of working really, really hard on learning and practicing so that they gain this high level of realization, this non-conceptual cognition of voidness, Four Noble Truths, etc. And then they continue working on toward liberation and enlightenment. So that's the example we need to follow. So, relevance in daily life. I have some sort of model and spiritual teaching. It's very inspiring to me when things are going roughly and I am learning the Dharma methods and I'm focusing within that on the methods that can help me to overcome my anger and greed and selfishness, etc. And I'm following the example of the Arya Sangha of trying to put it into practice all the time. Whenever difficulties arise, and even when difficulties aren't arising, as some sort of preventive to avoid difficulties arising. And we're just doing it. And underlying it, I don't want things to get worse, and I understand that if I do like this, it will help me to be happier and to avoid problems. And doing it, it feels right. I feel happier. More peace of mind. I'm not just a victim of the difficulties that happen in my life. I'm, in a sense, working to overcome them. So it gives us some strength. And then parallel to the safe direction from all three, the three gens as a whole, then, first of all, we withdraw our minds from the pursuit of sensory pleasures and they certainly fly off to them and work on ourselves instead as the primary task in our lives. As one of my teachers, Kishi Nalan Target, used to say, we should stop being a tourist of samsara. <laughs> we have to go do all the different possible things that a samsaric life can entail. Because just pursuing sensory pleasures and uh, these sort of things, this is what's called the suffering of change, if you really look at it. Because they don't satisfy, they don't last, we always want more. And if we have too much at a time, it makes us sick, right? Like if eating our favorite food with true happiness, the more we ate at one time, the happier we would be. But obviously there's a limit there. Whereas if instead of doing this as our primary pursuit, we make our primary pursuit working on ourselves and trying to overcome what causes us to lose peace of mind, then obviously as a result we'll have more peace of mind. We will in fact be happier in a much more stable way. It might not be so dramatic as a sexual encounter, but it is much more stable and secure. So that doesn't mean that we have to give up completely all entertainment and uh, all good food and uh, sexual experience and stuff like that, give away all our money. But what it does mean is to put that in a certain perspective, Sometimes we need to relax. We need to relax in order to be able to get back and work more efficiently. But if we take this relaxation almost in a manner of a medicine, we have this in one of the dedication prayers in terms of food. I take this food not out of greed, not out of desire, and so on. I take it as a medicine to be able to give me more strength, to be able to continue working to help others. So if we look at our relaxation, going to the movies or whatever it is, as uh, some sort of medicine to regenerate our energy, then fine. Because then it stays within 
certain limits, certain moderations, and we don't overinflate the pleasure that we might get from that. So uh, <laughs> it's not that there's this joke, whoever at the end of life has accumulated the most toys, the most material possessions, wins. It's not like that. It's not this. So the whole point of life is to uh, accumulate as many gadgets and electronic devices and have seen more movies than everybody else or that we have on our bank account. There's a larger number than somebody else's bank account or we've eaten more food than anybody else. This is not the point of life, is it? And it's not going to give any sort of lasting satisfaction, particularly if we think in terms of future lives. Okay, so that is something that really sets the whole tone of our daily life, that our primary focus is not on entertainment. Listening to more and more music, or something like that. You know, these people that are addicted to listening to music all day long and walk around with their iPods and so on. But that's a big primary thing in our life. The primary thing in our life is working on going in this direction, trying to overcome our greed, our selfishness, etc. But again, not as the, this perfectionist type of way. But we can still have fun. Well, that's a very interesting concept. What is fun? <laughs> my favorite story of that was I was with my teacher, Sir Rinpoche, the old one, and we were in Holland and we were staying with a wealthy family and they had a very large yacht, a very large boat which they kept in a very small lake <laughs> and they uh, took us for a ride in their yacht and we were in the small lake with a lot of other yachts and we just went in a circle very slowly as if we were on some sort of children's ride in the amusement park and Rinpoche turned to me and said in Tibetan is this what they consider fun? <laughs> So, what is fun? Shanti Davis says, if our Dharma work is fun for us, then we're not happy unless we are doing this type of Dharma work, helping others, working on ourselves, etc. So, that's what perseverance is all about. It's uh, enjoying what we're doing. If we can enjoy what we do, then we'll continue with it. And there is a great deal of joy involved in improving ourselves, getting rid of or lessening various disturbing emotions, various internal conflicts, and so on. It's very enjoyable. Hard work, but enjoyable. And as we get more and more results, which of course is going to go up and down, it's not linear, then, wow, it's fantastic. I'm actually doing something. I'm thinking of the analogy of somebody that's training in a sport. It's really hard work to swim all the time or run all the time and so on, but if we're able through the training to be able to endure and run farther or run faster or all of these sort of things, we really feel great, don't we? And despite the difficulty, we enjoy it. So the same thing, I'm training and training and wow, I was able to go to a uh, family dinner with all the relatives that I really find very irritating and I didn't lose my temper. I was able to be patient and it was okay. Got through the meal perfectly okay. In fact, I even enjoyed it. 
Despite my mother and my father saying, why aren't you getting married yet? And why don't you have children? And why don't you make more money? And why don't you call me more often? And why don't you come here more often? I was able to keep my peace of mind and deal with it. And you really feel good that you're able to do that. Okay. Then the next one. So it was withdrawing our minds from the pursuit of sensory pleasures. I guess we got a little bit off the track there. But the point being that Dharma practice and so on is, in fact, more enjoyable than just listening to more and more music. Then the next one is adopting the ethical standards that the Buddhists have set. This is a very important thing. And this we'll discuss further when we talk about karma tomorrow. To go in this direction in our life means that we have to avoid destructive behavior and act in a constructive way. So this is following the basic Buddhist ethics, because if we act destructively based on our disturbing emotions, it's just going to produce more unhappiness, especially for ourselves and possibly for others. If we act constructively, it will bring more happiness. Buddhist ethics is not based on obedience, It's not the principle of ethics here. In other systems, these are the laws either set by some divine authority or set by legislation, and you have to be obedient and obey the laws. Buddhism isn't like that. But rather, the whole point is learning to discriminate ourselves between what's helpful and what's harmful. What's helpful, what's harmful. And based on that discrimination to discriminating awareness, we call it, to then refrain from what would be harmful. And what's harmful is what would be self-destructive, or what would have us go in just worse and worse directions, like getting more and more addicted to some sort of destructive habit, whether we're talking about destructive from a health point of view, like smoking, or destructive from a social point of view, whatever, and do what would be helpful for improving ourselves and improving our ability to help others. Then the next one is trying to be as sympathetic and compassionate to others as possible. So I don't think that needs terribly much explanation. Even if we're just working for our own personal liberation, we certainly need to be kind to others and help them, etc. And then the last one is making special offerings of fruit, flowers, and so on on Buddhist special days, such as the anniversary of Buddhist enlightenment. That's an interesting one, actually, because we might have the attitude that I don't need to celebrate special holidays. What's the whole point of that? This is when we think of the example of how commercialized Christmas has become and so on in the West. So what do I need this for? Is this just a Buddhist version of putting up a Christmas tree? And instead of putting lights on the Christmas tree, I'm putting lights in uh, little bowls on an altar? I mean, what is this all about? But I think the whole point here is just showing respect for the Buddha and the uh, tradition, the masters, and so on. It's just a token of respect. We don't have to make a big, big deal out of it. And we don't have to wait for a certain holiday, Buddhist holiday, in order to show that respect. That's something that we can do every day. We shouldn't make it like, I'll only go to church on Sunday, and the rest of the week I will do whatever I want. But observing a religious holiday makes us also feel part of a larger community, so like a support group. So I think it also serves some sort of social function. So when we look at these trainings, 
we find that there are certain things that don't sound exclusively Buddhist, being compassionate and sympathetic to others and following ethics and so on. I mean, that's pretty universal, isn't it? So I think that what makes it specifically Buddhist are the earlier items in this list. Look at the examples of the great Buddhist masters as your role model. Study the teachings, specifically the teachings that are aimed at lessening your uh, disturbing emotions, and follow the example of the great highly realized beings. Really work hard. And in the context of that, that means the general picture of being following ethics and being kind and sympathetic and uh, not following heavily these uh, sensory type of desires, but staying pretty straight in terms of my priorities and showing respect for the tradition. So we had a group of trainings for uh, each of the individual gems and then for the three in general here coming from a Sangha's text. So similarly, we have from the guideline instructions some trainings for each of the specific gems and some for the three altogether. So in terms of the individual gems, we have one action to avoid and one action to adopt in relation to each of the three. So when we uh, take our safe direction from the Buddhas, put that direction in our life, the thing that we need to shun or avoid is taking our main direction from elsewhere. This is an interesting thing to observe in ourselves. When I'm really feeling terribly, terrible, I feel bad, in a bad mood, things are not going well, in a conventional sense, what do I turn to for refuge, for comfort? Is it chocolate, for example? I'm really feeling bad, and so I'll go out and stop my face with a big bar of chocolate, and somehow have a little bit of pleasure, and it makes me, it's not so bad. There's still chocolate in the world. <laughs> Life can't be all that bad. <laughs> it's interesting what we turn to when uh, things are going poorly. Is it I've got to talk to a friend? Is it sex? Is it what is it? Are we like the dog? We need to be patted on the head and uh, we'll wag our tail. What is it? And uh, here. It's saying that, okay, it's all right to have some chocolate if you're feeling a bit depressed and so on, but that's not the ultimate source of direction in our life is uh, chocolate. That how about applying the Dharma methods to deal with the difficult situation? I find it quite interesting that people who are so, so strongly into Dharma, supposedly, and even the Dharma teachers, Western Dharma teachers, they have uh, difficulty in their marriage or whatever, and they go into psychotherapy rather than trying to apply the Dharma methods. So I always find it a little bit strange. Because if we sincerely take, this is my direction in life, Dharma, then supposedly we are convinced that the Dharma offers a solution to the problems that we have in life. Obviously, that doesn't mean that if we have cancer or something like that, that, well, I'm just going to sit here and meditate. And Dharma will solve all of that. Don't be silly. You go to a doctor. It doesn't mean that. But if we feel that we need to go to a therapist in order to be able to discuss our problems with somebody and get another point of view and uh, so on, fine. But that would just be an adjunct 
something extra in terms of actually trying to apply the Dharma methods. But the main refuge, the main direction, the main thing that I'm looking at in order to help me overcome my shortcomings are the Dharma methods. Maybe I need some guidance in how to apply them, but I have confidence that Buddha understood how to get rid of problems. Now, often when this point is brought up of not taking our paramount or ultimate direction from elsewhere, in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, what is mentioned is, well, don't take your ultimate refuge from worldly gods and from... It's from a Buddhist point of view that they're worldly gods. Obviously, various religions wouldn't call their god a worldly god. But from other religions and within Buddhism, from protectors and things like that. When Sir Rinpoche was asked about, well, I've become a Buddhist, but can I still go to church? That's this in Italy. <laughs> Rinpoche replied, well, are the Christian teachings on love contradictory? to the Buddhist teachings on love. And obviously they're not. So there's no problem if you want to go to church. But the thing is, what is the ultimate direction that you're going in in your life? You have to make some sort of decision of what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to cut out everything else, but to just have it clear what we're doing in life. And if there are positive things that we can learn from other traditions, fine. No problem. But don't mix everything into a stew. If you're talking about practices, we don't go into a church and do prostration, for example. And while you're in the church and certain things that they do you don't like, so then you sit there with a mic and you all of that. They do things individually. But what they always talk about here in the text is these sort of worldly spirits, which sometimes are... Uh, set up as protectors. These are not reliable. They're going to let you down. And we don't want to get into worshipping of ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. So this is perhaps more relevant for a Tibetan or Indian audience. But there are some Westerners who are fascinated by these various spirits and so on. These are protectors and they get into that. Especially this word protector sounds as though they're going to protect us. So... Now, of course, in some traditions within Buddhism, within Tibetan Buddhism, they say some protectors are emanations of Buddhas and so on. And now we get into almost like biological taxonomy of the different classes of spirits and the different classes of protectors. And almost becomes, as I say, like a biology lesson. But the thing to recognize is that what is the basic thing that we can do in terms of protection from suffering. And the primary thing to rely on is basically our karma. In other words, through inspiration and the example of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, then what we do, how we act, is going to affect what we experience in the future. So these protectors, what they can do is perhaps bring about certain circumstances or conditions which will enable us to burn off some of these negative potentials by experiencing them in minor ways so that the positive ones can ripen more quickly. It's the same thing like doing rituals for the medicine Buddha that can just provide circumstances or conditions for if we have the positive potentials to overcome this sickness for them to ripen. But the point is, if we haven't built up these positive potentials from our previous behavior, 
doesn't matter how much we rely on a protector or a medicine Buddha or whatever, we don't have the basis for experiencing more happy situation. So it's very important in our Buddhist practice for it to not become protector worship or Buddha worship for that matter. Everything is dependent on what we ourselves do, how we act, how we communicate, how we think. And we have models, we have teachings, we have a goal that we could achieve and so on, but we have to actually do it. Okay, so we need to be clear what our ultimate direction is. And although we can turn to other things temporarily for a little bit of help, keep the main track clear. Then in terms of having the safe direction of Dharma, what we need to avoid is causing harm or mischief to others, humans, animals, whatever. We're obviously trying to help others, not trying to hurt them. And that, of course, is quite difficult because we could say something to somebody else and we have perfectly good intentions and we didn't mean anything nasty or whatever. And for some reason, they got highly offended by what we said, misunderstood it, and got very, very upset and angry. And we walk on the ground, which most of us do when we walk, then inevitably you're going to step on something. So the point is to try to minimize the harm that we do to others and certainly not intend to do harm. But just because of this limited hardware that we have and the limited hardware that others have, inevitably we're going to hurt others. So the point is to try to minimize that as much as possible. And then from taking safe direction from the Sangha, what we want to avoid is associating closely with negative people. Now, this is a very delicate issue here. What we're talking about is when we are not strong in our spiritual path, then the company that we keep could very easily influence us one way or another. So if we're with others that are always indulging in rather negative things, whether we're talking about some sort of street gang that's involved in petty crime, or we have a group of friends that are always uh, taking drugs or always getting drunk with alcohol, etc., then it's very difficult not to be influenced by them if we're not strong. We want to be accepted, we don't want to offend them, and so on, and so we drink and take drugs and go around and scratch cars and stuff like that, graffiti all over the place. And after a while, we ourselves become addicted to that. And so this doesn't mean that we have to tell them, oh, you're terrible people, etc. But the thing is to not hang out with them, not spend all our time with these people when they really are going to be negative influences on us. And if we really are very weak, then it's best to avoid them altogether. Like, for instance, if you're trying to overcome being an alcoholic, you really need to stop being with your alcoholic friends. So you, you go into this other group of the Alcoholics Anonymous. You're with a group of people that will support you for overcoming alcoholism. So it's a little bit like that. So it's very interesting because all these points interconnect with each other. So we can start to say, well, what is the most important thing in my life? Is the most important thing in my life to be accepted and liked by this group of friends who are into very negative habits? Is that what is the most important thing in my life? Is that going to bring me long-lasting happiness? Or is overcoming these 
shortcomings in myself and being better able to help others and so on. Is that more important? Of course, that doesn't mean that we give up having concern for them, love for them, and so on. Of course we have. And we wish for them to be happy. But also, I mean, we have to be careful here. On one hand, you don't want to become influenced and uh, just fall into their patterns. But on the other hand, you don't want to go to the extreme, as we've pointed out before. Uh, well, I'm Buddhist, I'm so much better than you, and so on. And eventually I'm going to save you from your sin, your life of sin. This uh, is obviously a terrible attitude to have. But people grow a pile. It's sort of a natural thing that happens in life. So without giving them the feeling that you disapprove of them or that they're no good or anything like that, point here is when we could be strongly influenced by them, best is to avoid them. And it doesn't mean that you have to then go live in a holy, holy Buddhist community and wear all white clothes and be a vegan. It doesn't mean that. But just watch out what kind of influence we have, what type of influence we're subject to. So we try as much as possible to avoid detrimental influences. And that detrimental influence could be not only from people. It could be from television. It could be from looking at pornography on the Internet. It could be from watching violent movies, playing violent video games. All of this its a type of influence that just increases your desire or your hostility. Then uh, the three actions to adopt as a sign of respect in terms of the Buddhas. We show respect to statues, painting, and other artistic depictions of Buddhas. And we show respect to all books, particularly Dharma books in terms of Dharma direction. And respect to all persons with monastic vows, Buddhist monastic vows, and even to just the robes, the monastic robes. So, as a sign of respect, we want to avoid disrespect. So, you don't hang a, a beautiful Buddha painting in the toilet. You don't uh, sit on your Dharma books you know, or put them under the chair so that the chair doesn't wobble or under the table. And uh, if there are Buddhist monks and nuns at our Dharma center, we don't treat them like the servants who are the ones that should provide all the facilities for us because we are the great holy practitioners. So they're the ones that have to make tea and collect the money at the door and clean up afterwards, which unfortunately happens in many Dharma centers. The monastics are the ones that are most interested in receiving the teachings, and they're the ones that are not able to go to them because they have to be the administrators and organizers, of course. This is not proper. So it's not that we're worshipping the statues, it's not that we're worshipping the books or worshipping the uh, monks and nuns or their robes, but the whole point is to show respect. These represent the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. Then we have six trainings which are shared in common for all the, uh, the three gems. Again, to just review what we've just covered, we want to put the safe direction in our life. So what are we doing? We are uh, avoiding our primary direction from uh, other things and we are uh, basically not causing harm to others and we are avoiding negative influences of other people and showing respect to symbols of the direction that we're going. That makes sense and it's something we can do as part of our daily life. So this is relevance in our life, isn't it? That we are respectful of certain things, that we keep clear what's the most important thing in our life, and we watch out for negative influences that can turn us away, that could divert us.
That's what we try to find conducive conditions that will help us go in this direction. And by showing respect to Buddha paintings and Dharma books and monastics, well, that's an external sign of showing respect. But also internally, we need to show respect to what we're doing and what we're doing with our life. And that also is very important. Because we might be in circumstances in which we can't make an external show of our Dharma practice. Let's say if we're in prison or in the army or something like that, or even in a hospital, you're in a ward of other people. You can't necessarily light incense and put up Buddha statues and things like that. But... That's our attitude of respect for ourselves and what we're doing. It's very important. Staying for the weekend in the one-room dacha with your parents. Well, not so cool to do prostrations right there in front of your parents. They might think that's pretty weird. And start to ask all sorts of uncomfortable questions. So you don't have to do that. It's very important to be flexible according to the conditions in which we're in. But keep our direction quite clear and our priorities clear. Then these uh, trainings shared in common from all the three uh, gems according to guideline instructions. First of all, we reaffirm our safe direction by uh, continually reminding ourselves of the good qualities of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Now, remember we uh, were speaking earlier about how just do it, just go in this direction. Well, that could become a little bit mechanical, so it's important to reaffirm motivation and so on. So by reminding ourselves of the good qualities of Buddha Dharma Sangha, of going in this direction, the benefits of it, and so on, then uh, this uh, helps us to uh, have some, what we would call, feeling behind uh, doing all of this. And next, in gratitude to their kindness and the spiritual sustenance, the spiritual energy and so on that they help give us, that they help provide us to offer the first portion of our hot drinks and meals each day to the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. Now, you can put a little portion of your first tea in the morning or something like that out on some altar, or it could just be in our imagination, it doesn't matter. But if you do put something out, you don't just leave it there to rot, or like in India, wait for the mice to come and eat it. But you offer it, obviously, the Buddhas don't need our little cup of tea or a piece of fruit. And they're not going to eat it, actually, but it's a token. And so after a little while, you imagine that they give it back to you and you eat it. And if it's a tea offering or something like that, you don't just flush it down the toilet. It's not very respectful. (laughs) So better to drink it yourself. Now, of course, the problem is what happens with your water bowls. If you have quite a large amount of water, you're going to have to drink that every day. Well... No, I have to water my plants with it every day. I'd probably drown them if I used all that water every day. But at least down the sink, not down the toilet. And not like I'm thinking of some examples in some uh, countries in the world where they would just throw it out the window. That's also what we wouldn't do. In any case, it's not necessary to recite a special verse in a foreign language that we don't understand. As I mentioned yesterday, it's also Kenzie Rinpoche saying the Tibetans had to recite a verse in German that they didn't understand every time they made an offering or whatever. 
they certainly wouldn't do that. So the important point is to make some sort of offering. We can just say, as Sikh Rinpoche used to say, Buddhas enjoy this. That's all you have to say. And you don't even have to say it out loud. Buddhas enjoy this. So what I usually say is, I offer this to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and all beings. May everybody enjoy such wonderful food. And we don't have to put on a big show out loud, Om, uh, Om, and then sit there and do some sort of dedication of the food for five minutes, and everybody at the table is dying to eat, just waiting for us. When is he going to finish already? But if you just do it in your mind, nobody has to know what you're doing. That's everybody can do it at their own pace. But that's much more impressive. But it's much more impressive, of course. Especially if you start in a very deep voice. Oh, wow. So, we don't need to make a show of our Dharma practice. Especially if it's going to make other people uncomfortable or they're going to start making fun of us. That's very important. You don't want to set yourself up that other people make fun of your spiritual practice. That takes all the energy out of it. You know, our Dharma practice really needs to be something which is private, then in a sense it becomes something sacred to us, and this is important. And uh, then the third one, mindful of the compassion of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, indirectly encouraging others to go in their direction. That doesn't mean that we go out and are missionaries and we try to save everybody and convert everybody, certainly not. But if others are receptive, if others are interested, you know, we give them some encouragement. And the best encouragement is uh, speaking from our own example and our own experience. This was beneficial to me. And whether it's going to be beneficial to you or not, I don't know, but it helped me. So indirectly, you encourage them to try it out themselves. Then uh, remembering the benefits of having the safe direction, formally reaffirming it three times each day and three times each night. That's usually when we wake up in the morning and before we go to sleep, just repeating, not just repeating the words, but I take my safe direction from the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So just reminding ourselves of this uh, direction very explicitly. And often this is done with making prostration three times. But it doesn't necessarily have to be done that way. Fifth one, whatever happens, relying on our safe direction. So in terms of crisis and so on, this is what we're going to rely on. Not just Buddha save me from this, but what would the Buddhist advice be for how to handle this and try to implement that. Friends may give us sympathy and help, and they may help with mechanical things like I'm having problems with my computer or with my car, but with personal problems in life and so on, then friends are limited. They have problems of their own. And unfortunately, friends inevitably let us down, which is... uh, disappoint us. That means that we have great hopes that they're going to help us, but we lose sight of the fact that we are not the only thing that's happening in their life, and that why should we be the most important thing that they devote all their time and energy to? That's very self-centered, isn't it? So inevitably, they're going to let us down. They have other things to do. They have other concerns. They have other problems. And our teachers may be busy. They might not have time. They might be off in some other country or whatever. But the inspiration of the teachings is always available. The teachings themselves, something that we can apply, are always available. So that's not going to disappoint us if we actually are receptive to that inspiration. We actually try to put those methods into practice. 
And the final commitment is never giving up this direction in life, no matter what happens. Life, the nature of samsara, the nature of life, is that it goes up and down. So you look at the experience of some of these great Tibetan Buddhist masters in Tibet. They've been such strong practitioners all their life, and then they end up in a uh, Chinese concentration camp for 20 years. And so it could be quite possible that they just gave up my Dharma practice was useless. Look what happened to me. I practiced so much of my life and then I contracted a horrible, painful cancer at the end of my life. But as one Tibetan master said very succinctly, what do we expect from samsara? We expect that everything's going to go well, that things are going to get better. I mean, the nature of samsara is that it goes up and down and sometimes it's going to go down. And sometimes we're going to experience uh, very unpleasant things regardless of the positive things that we've been doing before. And so we try to not get discouraged by that and no matter what happens, continue going in this positive direction. Sometimes the Tibetans love to use examples from the animal world. And Serpa Rinpoche uh, always loved to go to the circus or to these aquariums where they have trained dolphins or seals or things like that. And so when we do our Dharma practice and we do something positive, do we expect that we're going to be like a trained seal or a trained dolphin and the Buddha is going to throw us a fish every time that we do something positive and we get a reward for it? Obviously, this is uh, not the way that we're trained in order for things to go well as the result are so called fish that we get to eat. So that gives us something to think about. Are we just doing our Dharma practice in a sense uh, like a trick, like a trained animal to get a reward, or are we doing it to basically improve our lives and whether we get things go well or they don't go well? We are convinced that in the long term things will go better. So these are the various points that uh, we train in and I think they give us uh, quite a clear indication of the practical application of having this direction in life, what we're actually going to be doing each day, and the guidelines that will pertain to each day in terms of having this direction in our life. And it's not just being a nice person, but studying the teachings, learning them, showing respect to our uh, spiritual path, to others who are following it, etc., etc., all these points. So let's end with the dedication for today. Tomorrow we'll uh, speak about karma. So we think uh, whatever positive force, whatever understanding has been built up by this, may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all.